0: this morning, if you'll find your way to Mark's Gospel chapter 2 beginning in verse 1 and we will continue through verse 12 today in a message that I've entitled simply taking taking from the scribe's question in verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Would you read with me now in Mark chapter 2 Verse 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. When he had come back, meaning Jesus, when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing "...to him a paralytic carried by four men, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning or debating in their hearts... Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in His Spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up, and immediately picked up the pallet, and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Would you pray with me? God, help us to comprehend this text this morning. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be especially present among us. Lord, we know the Spirit of God is everywhere, but there's a special sense of knowing the presence of God when believers who are indwelled by the Spirit gather. And so we pray, God, that we would commune with you and Lord, that we would draw from you wisdom and knowledge and understanding, that you would open our eyes, that we could see the wonderful things in your scripture this morning, that you would teach us and instruct us and challenge us and guide us in accordance with your word and in accordance with where we are in our walk with Christ. Make us more like Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Last week we saw that Jesus's pattern for pursuing the mission of God was really a threefold pattern. We Commune with the Father in prayer, and we proclaim the gospel, and then we expect Jesus to take the word and apply it to lives and to cleanse those who ask for his cleansing. The cleansed leper tells others about his cleansing, and so Jesus, growing in popularity, has to move outside of the city where others are coming to him. But now in this text, we find that Jesus apparently slides back into Capernaum undetected. It doesn't take long. For word to spread, though, that Jesus is back at His home in Capernaum. Jesus has taught, He's cast out demons, He's healed physical sickness with authority. What on the earth could be controversial about this man, Jesus? Everything He does is benefiting people. What is controversial about Jesus? His authority. How is it possible that in less than a few years, this man would... Go from healing people in Capernaum to being crucified on a cross. The issue is his authority. You see, one who grants absolute healing and spiritual transformation also has absolute authority in our lives. He claims an authority over everything we say and do and think. He's not just a Sunday Jesus. He's a Sunday to Sunday Jesus. He's not a Jesus that says you can come in and pretend on Sunday and live your life like hell Monday to Saturday and then come back on Sunday. He's got an authority that is dominant. It dominates our lives. It's an authority that we can't question or quibble with. It's it's all authority. So chapter 2 is beginning to give us the answer, how is it that this miracle worker and this healer and this proclaimer of great truth and hope could end up on a cross? Edwards tells us that Mark chapter 2 through about the middle of chapter 3 shows us that Jesus supersedes the Torah, meaning the law, and the tradition of the elders, showing us what happens when the Messiah goes public exploding the customs and the conventions of the day. The things that we do on the outside that appear to make us seem like that we're religious, while on the inside, we are dying. The presence of Jesus puts the authorities on notice. God has come to directly forgive His people. No more missing the point of the law and seeking righteousness in our own strength. The fulfillment of the law has come, and His name is Jesus The law which was given to reveal the sinfulness of our lives is now fulfilled by the One who can forgive sin and give us His power to do what He commands. And that upsets the authorities. Because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, there's four things we must do that we find in this text. First, we must be more than a face in the crowd. Second, we must bring those who are paralyzed by sin to faith in Jesus. Thirdly, we must expect Jesus to prove His authority to forgive in our lives despite the objections of the self-righteous. There's always going to be somebody who doesn't believe you've been forgiven. Always going to be somebody to quibble with the change that Jesus makes in your life. Regardless of the detractors, Jesus can forgive. And finally, we must glorify God for the work He does through His Son. First, we must be more than a face in the crowd. In verse 2, Jesus is speaking the word to a standing room only crowd. But Mark is not impressed with crowds. And there's a warning here for us, North Roanoke. I, I love crowds. I love preaching to crowds. Crowds provide the platform for the proclamation of the gospel. But at the end of the day, Jesus isn't looking for a crowd. He's looking for followers. He's looking for people who walk in His way. And He's preaching the Word. The Word is the Word of God. And in particular, in this context, it's the Gospel. The good news that Jesus preached back in chapter 1. The good news that the Kingdom of God is near and that we can repent of our sins and we can believe in the Gospel. But Mark is showing us it's not enough just to be a face in the crowd. I, I pray this morning that if you're here and you're just a face in the crowd, that God would move you from being a face in the crowd, to a follower of Jesus. Crowds form the audiences for Jesus' teaching. And they are objects of His compassion. But Mark never describes crowds as turning to Jesus in repentance and belief, as the Gospel requires. You see, it's easy to be a face in the crowd. To be a face in the crowd doesn't require that you lean on Jesus, just that you listen to Him. The crowds fill a room, but they never let Jesus fill their hearts. Aiken adds this, they want another miracle, but Jesus gives them preaching. Interestingly enough, it's the crowds that stand in the way of the paralytic coming to Jesus. The crowds in the Gospel of Mark block access to Jesus. Look at verse 4. The friends of the paralytic are unable to enter the house. Why? Because of the crowd. Crowds clamor for a convenient moment of astonishing teaching, but they block the way of true discipleship. We don't gather this morning to be a crowd. We don't gather this morning to just be a face in the crowd. We come with the understanding that we were paralytics. Some of you this morning might still be spiritually paralyzed. And I pray that you've come not just to hear a preacher preach a sermon, but to let the Word of God penetrate your heart and change you from the inside out. We don't come as those who are just a face in the crowd. We are those who needed to be graciously brought to Jesus, forgiven and healed by Him, just like the paralytic. We don't come looking to compare our pastor to the latest podcast or to have our ears tickled with some tweet-worthy material. Rather, we come as poor and needy people, begging God to take His truth and by His Spirit, lead us to continued repentance and deeper belief so that we will be conformed to the image of his beloved son. Romans 8:29. We can't just be a face in the crowd. And one of the greatest evidences that we have the forgiveness of Jesus and are indeed following in his way is that we want to be a part of a church that is bringing others to Jesus. One of the greatest evidences that you're not just a face in the crowd and that you're really a follower of Jesus is that you're looking for others who would be followers of Jesus. So secondly, because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, we must bring those who are paralyzed by sin to faith in Jesus. And we must do so in faith ourselves. We must believe that God can heal. In verse 3, we find four men bringing and carrying their friend. Literally, the Greek tells us they are bearing him and raising him up, which is interesting. It's the same words that the Bible uses of Jesus, bearing his cross. And then on the third day, when he is raised up, he allows that we would be raised up with him. What Jesus is showing us, what Mark is showing us, is that Jesus uses his followers in the work of, of bringing people to faith and raising them up. Jesus lets His team, lets His followers be a part of His work. Notice, we don't know anything about these four men. All we know is they brought a man who's been paralyzed by sin to Jesus. And they did so with faith. Not just any kind of faith, of faith that verse 5 tells us that Jesus can see. That's all we know about them. We don't know their names, their ages, their parents, their academic major, or their GPA. In the 1700s, Austrian Count von Zinzendorf, who was a Moravian, convinced that the Spirit of God makes an internal transformation in the heart of man, is commissioning some missionaries to go to the West Indies to preach the gospel to some black slaves. And this is what he says to those missionaries. The missionary must must seek nothing for himself. No seat of honor, no report of fame like the cab horses in London. He must wear blinkers and be blind to every danger and every snare and conceit. He must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. When, men, when the men arrive, there's no longer room, not even near the door. Verse 2. And we know that the men have faith that God can heal their friend because they don't turn around and leave. They respond to adversity, not with desertion, but with action and audacity. It apparently never occurs to the crowds to leave the house and make way for the paralytic. Have you ever thought about that? Would to God if, if somebody comes into our service and it's perhaps late or it's awkward and we're standing, that God would that we would have room for those who've not been here before. That we would have room in our hearts, that for the people who are still out there paralyzed by sin, that if we were to bring them in, that we would have room for them, that we would make room for them if necessary. God, help us not be merely a crowd huddled around the truth about Jesus, but never budging for people who need to meet Jesus. So these men go up on top of a roof that doesn't belong to them, by the way, and they literally, the Greek tells us, they unroof the roof. They dig through the mud and the branches, presumably showering Jesus in the crowds below. So Simon either gets a skylight or a repair bill, I'm not sure, it doesn't matter. But their friend needs to see Jesus. So here's, here's a question for us, North Rono: What limits have we placed on our willingness to bring others to Jesus? Who won't you bring? Is it people who disagree with you politically? Is it people who speak a different language or happen to be from a different ethnic group? Is it people that would cost you too much to bring them? How far out of your way won't you go to bring someone to Jesus? What level of embarrassment won't you tolerate to bring someone to Jesus? What's holding you back from bringing someone to Jesus? What roof is King Jesus sending you up on top of to unroof that you might get a paralytic down to be touched by Jesus? Edwards tells us that faith as described in the Bible is linked more with acting than with feeling or knowing. We so often think about faith as the warm fuzzies on the inside of our heart when we sing a song or See a film or a flick that moves us on the inside. But it's not real faith until it moves us to do something about it. Real faith in Jesus is proven by determined action to bring others to Jesus. We do this in all sorts of ways. We pray for people by name. We avoid certain conversations on social media. Because we don't want our face to be seen on social media. We want the face of Jesus to be seen we invite people to church we engage people in challenging theological conversations and we don't when we don't know the answers we come ask Pastor Daniel on Wednesday night sermon class and then we go back out and we say hey why don't you come to Wednesday night class with Daniel and we'll have these theological discussions and conversations we share sermons on Facebook we're always ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us and we do this with confidence that those who bring the hurting in faith to Jesus will not be disappointed. And in this case, the men bring a paralytic. This man's physical condition gives a picture of every human heart that is dominated by the enslaving power of sin. If you don't belong to Jesus, you are spiritually paralyzed. Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we know that oftentimes... Physical malady is not connected with sin, but in this case, it seems like his physical condition has some sort of connection to his sin because the first issue Jesus deals with is his sin. Sin prevents us from following Jesus, it prevents us from going in the Spirit's power, it holds us back from the joy of knowing and belonging to God. Are you paralyzed this morning? Drugs will enslave you. Depression will enslave you. Anger will enslave you. Bitterness will enslave you. Living in the past will enslave you. There's a whole litany of things that will paralyze and enslave the human soul. And the only way that you can emerge victorious from this and rise up and get off your mat and walk is if Jesus comes and forgives your sin. Aiken says sin is our greatest enemy and separates us from God. It renders us spiritually dead and if left unforgiven results in eternal death in a place called hell. It shatters relationships. It causes us to think foolishly. It leads us to make bad choices. And it moves us to act in evil and destructive ways. But where there is faith in Jesus, there is forgiveness from Jesus. A forgiveness that He proves through a changed life. So North Roanoke Baptist Church, because Jesus forgives sins, we need to be about the work of bringing people to Jesus. Thirdly, we must expect Jesus to prove His authority to forgive. That's the question, right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Answer, Jesus. Because He is God, but Jesus can and, we, and He doesn't just say that He can forgive sins. He proves that He can forgive sins. And He does it through the power of a changed life. Despite the objections of the scribes or the Pharisees or your family or whoever else says that Jesus doesn't have the power to forgive and heal and save, Jesus proves that He does have the authority. The paralytic is among those who have faith. In verse 5 it says, Jesus seeing their faith. Who's the there? There. Well, it's the four men who bring the paralytic in faith. They have faith that Jesus can do something, but I believe it's also the paralytic himself. The paralytic doesn't object to being brought to Jesus. We're never told that he does. He doesn't object to being lowered down to see Jesus. And as the men are digging, I believe the paralytic is hearing Jesus preach the Gospel. Remember, Jesus is preaching the Word. And so the Word does its work of exposing the The sins in the paralytic's life, and when he's before Jesus, the crowds may have been shocked by the fact that Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, but the paralytic wasn't surprised. He knew himself full well to be a sinner, to be someone who was not a son of God, but in a moment when Jesus grants forgiveness in our life, he can call you a son or a daughter because the junk on the inside of your life that separates you from God, Jesus takes it and forgives it and cleanses it in a moment. Jesus, you see, looked past the surface need and met his deeper need. He looked past the man's immediate need and met his real need. This is a picture of what every human needs. We must hear the Word of God, it must give rise to faith, and we must then be forgiven by Jesus. What does it mean to be forgiven? The word forgive means literally to send away. And the idea that Jesus can send sins away gets the attention of the scribes. In verse 6, they're sitting there like judges debating the merits of Jesus' declaration of the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7, why does this man speak this way? Who does he think he is? We've been religious leaders and theologians for years, and you just come in here and declare that his sins are forgiven, no penance, No purgatory, no pilgrimage, no tithes. You can't just come in here and start handing out forgiveness like leftover Halloween candy. You just wait a minute. I mean, doesn't forgiveness have to be earned after all? Don't people need to deserve the forgiveness of God? Isn't that the message of the law? We better work hard to please God so we can earn His forgiveness. And doesn't forgiveness belong to God alone? Just who do you think you are? Of course, forgiveness does belong to God alone. David shows us that when he sins with with and against Bathsheba. And he says, against God and God alone if I sinned. Does that mean he hadn't harmed his neighbor or violated his neighbor or sinned against his neighbor? No. What What he's saying is, ultimately, God's the only one who can grant forgiveness. The forgiveness that counts is the forgiveness that only God alone can give. But it's a forgiveness that must be received and can never be earned. You can only give forgiveness if God gives it to you. You can't do anything to deserve forgiveness. Jesus can forgive sins because He's God. He's immediately capable of knowing the hearts of the scribes in verse 8. And He has the absolute authority, verse 10, that His Father gave Him as the Son of Man, who is mentioned all the way back in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is the One who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him and His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7, verse 10. Listen to this. For the Son of Man to have a people in a forever kingdom, He must have the authority to first forgive their sins. Otherwise, it's going to be a barren kingdom. It's going to be an unpopulated kingdom, because if the Son of Man can't forgive sinners, then how can we enter into the kingdom of God? And if Jesus was not God, the scribes would have been right in their critique. He would have been a blasphemer, guilty of insulting God and claiming a power that is God's alone, which is a, sinable, which is a sin punishable by death, Leviticus 24.16. And it is what they will accuse Jesus of when ultimately He goes to the cross. But Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. God with us and for us and forgiver of our sins. But Jesus doesn't just send our sins away with a magic wand. He sends them away by going to the cross. Our sins can only be cast as far as east is from west because they were first born in His body. On the tree. Sin isn't sent away as if it never happened. It is taken by Jesus. He paid the price to free you from the power, paralyzing power of sin and guilt. He came to deliver you from the impossible task of making your guilt go away by what you do. No amount of what you do to cover up what you did will ever undo what you've done. He came to free you from the mental games that you play with your sin. This morning, I want to invite you to meet Jesus, forgiver of your sins, healer of your guilt, restorer of your heart, the one who says, I took your sin on the cross. Stop trying to take it back from me. When we do that with our past, when we do that with our anger, when we do that with our sin, what are we saying about the Jesus who already paid the price for the sin on the cross? Was He not enough? You see, when Jesus forgives sins, He proves that He has the authority to forgive with the evidence of a changed life. And so many people claim that they have the forgiveness of Jesus, but there's no evidence in their lives. To say that one is forgiven is easy. It's easy for you to say, Jesus has forgiven me, but it's not easy to fake it. Because when Jesus forgives you, He pours out His Holy Spirit and He transforms your heart and He gives you a freedom and a liberty and a joy that you can't manufacture that only comes from God. To say that one is forgiven is easy, but to actually grant forgiveness requires Jesus go to a cross and that He change your heart thereby. So Jesus does the easier thing in verse 9. People doubt that he can forgive, so he tells the paralytic to get up, pick up, and go. And what does the paralytic do in verse 12? He gets up, picks up, and goes. The paralytic does exactly what Jesus commanded him to do. We know the paralytic is forgiven because his paralysis is healed. And because he offers Jesus his obedience. While we cannot deserve Christ's forgiveness, the evidence... That we've truly received His forgiveness comes through a heart that is increasingly faithful to the commands of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, He reverses our paralysis, He makes us mobile in His kingdom, and He leads us to take steps of obedience so convenient, so appropriate, that we see a paralytic when Jesus is calling us to follow after Him. You can't follow Jesus if you're paralyzed. But when you come to Jesus, He forgives your sins and He removes your paralysis and He lets you follow after Him. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus lift our countenance? Why does He remove our paralysis and change our perspective and give us a mission? He does it so the scoffing world, whether the scribes of the first century or the coffee shop skeptics of the 21st century, so that they may Know, verse 10, that Jesus has the authority. All authority. The power to forgive sins, to heal hearts, and change lives and families and communities for the glory of Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords, and Son of man. When your life proves the transforming power of the forgiveness of Jesus it will also lead others to glory, not in you, but in the God who healed you. So fourthly, because Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, not only do we not be just a face in the crowd, not only do we bring others, not only do we receive God's forgiveness and let Him prove it in our lives, finally, we must glorify God for the work that He does through His Son. I pray, North Ronald Baptist Church, we never get over what Jesus does in a life. I pray that we never get past the transforming power of Jesus Christ. That what keeps bringing us back Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is that we get to glorify in the work of Christ the Son of God. So he gets up, he picks up, and he goes in the sight of everyone. And what were they doing? They were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. You know, a changed life is very difficult to explain away. And it should lead us to celebrate. It should lead us to rejoice. It should lead us to glorify God. The word glorify means weightiness, to give God the weightiness that is His. So this morning, let's celebrate that King. Who came to deliver us from our paralysis. To make us to rise and to walk and to go. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus can. God in the flesh. Son of God. Son of man. He can. And He will. If you'll open your heart. And trust Him by faith. This day. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming. You knew full well in verse 5 when you said, Son, your sins are forgiven you, that that was going to require the cross. You can't just make a lie go away. You can't just make sin go away. It's got to be paid for. And you paid the price. And Lord, there's some here even this morning who are still trying to pay for their own sins and they've found that they simply cannot do it. God, I pray that You would have Your will and Your way among us right now, in Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, if, if you're still trying to forgive yourself, still trying to pay for your own sin, can't seem to make them go away, It's never going to work. Come to the one who is qualified, who has the authority to pay for your sin, and to declare that you are forgiven. Others of you, you've been attending for some time. I I know your faces. It's time to stop being a face in the crowd and start being a member of the family of God. Walk this aisle. Say, I'm ready to be on mission, I'm ready to be all in. Whatever your need, we invite you to come as we sing.